You take your Bible and turn to Esther chapter 8, which is page 440. Esther chapter 8. We've just got two weeks left in Esther. We're going to wrap her up next week with chapter 9 and chapter 10. Uh, but this morning we're just going to sit in Esther chapter 8. Um, before we read it, let me just um, tell you this. A few weeks ago, Elizabeth and I and the kids were out walking. And we, we did a walk, which was called the Big Tree Walk. It was up in Scotland. And it, it was exactly what the walk said it was. It was a walk, a circular walk, um, walking through a woods with massive trees, like literally some of the trees, the girth on them was as wide as this room. Like these were huge, huge beasts. And it was a guided kind of walk as you went through. The Forestry Commission had put different signs. And I am one of those geeky people who will, if someone puts a sign up, I'm going to stop and read it and like read all of it. And so these signs were, um, I think Steve would probably be the only person who would appreciate that. He'd be with me. I think the rest of you, maybe Mark as well. But I'd stop and read all these signs. And there was one sign in particular, there was a, a huge tree. And honestly, the, the width of it was, was, was wider than my hands here. Had fallen over a big pine tree, hundreds of years old, probably. And had fallen uh, right across the path that the, this walk led through. And so you'd have to build, they built steps to go over it. It was that big. You could either go under it, actually, if you were short enough, or you could climb over, over these steps. And there was a sign on the side of it that explained a little bit of the history of this tree. But what really caught my eye was, was um, just something around the ecology of what happens when these big trees fall over. So when we kind of walk through woods and we see trees fall over, probably most of us who've got no idea what's going on just think, well, the tree's fallen over, it will die, it will eventually rot away if it's not chopped up to wood. But the person who wrote this sign said something fascinating. It said, actually, trees fallen in the forest, and this one must have gone over in a big storm. Is part of the natural ecosystem of, of a forest. And actually something fascinating happens when this tree falls over, it, it dies, it kind of the stump comes out of the ground, it dies. But then what, what happens afterwards is you start to see growth appear on the top of the stump. So if you imagine the log or the tree kind of lying horizontal, as it falls over, seeds land on the top of, of the tree beds, kind of bring and drop seeds on the top. And then these seeds start to grow out of the tree. And the way that, that this um, kind of board described it was that this dead tree acts as a defense for these little saplings as they grow because they want to find somewhere that is high enough up that the squirrels, or I guess squirrels can get them because they can climb, but the things along, along the floor of the forest can't get them. And so this dead tree, in effect, acts as a defense for these other trees which then start to grow out of the top of the tree. A picture of death bringing defense. It's interesting, up to chapter 8 so far, we've seen God do that very thing for his people. Last week we saw just a fascinating turn of events of God's enemies kind of working against God's people and then through the death of one man, God starts to bring deliverance for his people. Like God's people think it is over. This decree of death goes out across all of Persia to kill every Jew, not to spare one of them. And the very person who puts this decree out is the one who ends up dying. And it's through the death of that man that you start to see relief for the Jews. But we're actually at the end of chapter 7, the decree is still there. Like, like they haven't got out of it. Like the Jews are still going to die. There's nothing that the king can do to undo that decree. It still hangs over them. But what we're going to see in chapter 8 this week is that our God is a God who defends his people. And actually through the death of his son, even though that looks like defeat, even though the cross looks like defeat, even though it looks like his enemies have won as they kind of circle around the cross, 
They haven't. God is victorious at the cross. And through his death, he defeats his enemies and defends his people. Let's read chapter 8 together. Um, Starting in verse 1 through to verse 17. We'll read, then I'll pray, and then we'll jump in. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that has come into my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time. In the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 33rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and in their, and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted carriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them let's pray father we thank you that you are a god who saves we thank you that you are a god who refuses to leave his people in distress you're a god who refuses to leave us undefended but 
through the finished work of the cross, through the resurrection of your son, through the giving of your spirit, you have given us a means to be defended. We thank you that at the cross you defeated your enemies. We thank you that you have given your people a decree of life to be enjoyed now and for all eternity. Well, Jesus, we thank you that that is only possible because of your perfect life and your finished work on the cross, your resurrection and your ascension. And Jesus, we thank you that you've given us your spirit who is here now. Would, would you, Holy Spirit, would you remind us of our salvation? Would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Would we respond rightly to your word this morning? Would we believe it to be true? And would we willingly leave this place as people who, who desire to live lives which are marked by the salvation which you have secured for us? So Jesus, we pray these things that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So far in this book, we have seen without doubt that God is a God of providence. He's a God who is sovereign. He's a God who, even though we cannot see him and, and read kind of his words directly being spoken through this book, we know that he is at work. And we see this morning that he is a God who defends his people. So in the weeks kind of leading up to where we are in chapter 8, we see that the Jews kind of in, in mourning and in fasting, remember this, this decree of death has gone out and it's been sealed by the king. So, so something that has been sealed by the king cannot be undone. Then we start to see this reversal, Haman being executed, and now Haman's household being given to Queen Esther, the ring being given to Mordecai, a complete reversal of circumstances for God's people. But the decree is still there. It cannot be revoked. There's, there's some, something like uh, nine months left until this kind of day approaches, this day that was written in, in Haman's decree where all of the Jews would be annihilated. And the same day that the king kind of honors Esther and Mordecai and, and gives over Haman's household and, and, and honors Mordecai, Esther comes to the king. And look at her approach. She knows that this decree is still there. And so she comes before the king and throws herself before him. She falls at his feet. She weeps. She still feels the, the weight of, of death over her people. There's a real urgency for her to, to try and do something about this. Remember, we, we've seen that now she is associating herself with her people. She's no longer someone who kind of keeps herself away, but she has stepped into the situation and she wants to change it. King Ahasuerus has already shown that, that he is he's going to support the Jews. He has executed Haman and then he goes and gives Mordecai and Esther permission for them to write their own decree. Like this is a complete reversal of circumstances. Like these are the people who should be walking towards their death. And now the king is giving them permission to, to literally write what they will so that they can defend themselves. Look down in verse 11 and 12. This is what the decree is that they write. They say that the, the king will allow the Jews in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included and to plunder their goods. 
on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. That is the decree that Mordecai and Esther write out. And I want you to see something, something um, particularly important in this decree that goes out. Because we can kind of read that and kind of glance through it and, and see, well, well, the Jews are then allowed, are allowed to go out and do what Haman was allowed to do. They're allowed to go out and just slaughter whoever they want, but that isn't what the decree is. This is a defensive decree. Like it only allows them to, to kind of take action. Did you see that day again? Remember that day from a few weeks ago? On the 13th day, on the day that Haman said that all of the Jews would be annihilated, the Jews on that day are allowed to defend themselves. It says that in verse 11, they're allowed to gather together and defend their lives. This is a defensive decree. This isn't like them just being allowed to go out and do what they want. This is firstly them them being allowed to gather and defend themselves and then being allowed to arm themselves, but only for one day. Only on the day that their enemies are going to come against them. This is for them to defend themselves and nothing more. Remember, the decree of death cannot be revoked, but it can be nullified. It can be nullified by a more powerful decree. And that is the decree that Mordecai and Esther send out. A more powerful decree that allows God's people to defend themselves against their enemies. And I wonder, as you kind of read through that or you listened to it, whether you you picked up on, on, on some of the language that we've maybe heard before. So if you flick back, in the book to chapter three. Almost word for word, the way that Mordecai and Esther's decree is written out is almost word for word the way that Haman's decree is written out, but with stark contrasts. So let me just read it again, um, just some of, of the decree from verse 12 of chapter three. This is what Haman wrote. He, 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 he gets the king's scribes to come together on the 13th day of the first month. First month. And this is what he commands the satraps, the governors in all the provinces and all the officials of all the peoples in every province in its own script and every people in its own language. And his decree is written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, kill and, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month which is the month of Adar. A copy of the document is, is issued as a decree in every province by proclamation. The couriers go out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sit down to drink. The city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Can you see almost word for word these, these decrees are exactly the same? But there are stark contrasts for God's people. Haman's decree is written as a decree of death. Mordecai and Esther's decree is a decree of life. The decree that Haman writes is a decree to destroy. Esther and Mordecai's decree is a decree to defend. One, if you noticed in chapter 3, Haman's decree goes out to everyone apart from the Jews. Esther and Mordecai's decree goes out to the whole empire, to everyone. Interestingly as well, Haman's decree goes out. It goes out hurriedly. But there's an interesting inclusion in chapter 8 that Esther and Mordecai's decree goes out with the fastest horses they could find, with great haste. Verse 9, which kind of describes how uh, 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 Esther and Mordecai bring the people together to get this out is actually the longest verse in the Bible. 
and it goes on and gives detail of how urgently this is going to go out and it goes out again to every single province from Ethiopia to India, 127 provinces in everyone's own language so there can be no doubt that God's people can defend themselves. And how do the Jews react to this? The decree goes out, everyone receives it. They all receive it in their own language. It's announced in the, in the city in Susa. How do they react to it? Look down at verse 15. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. See the contrast there of Haman's decree going out? How was the city left? Confused. But now the city of Susa shouts and rejoices. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every province and in every city, wherever the king commanded. And as edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. What a reversal, folks. What a contrast to chapter three. You see how God's people respond to, to Haman's uh, decree of death as it goes out in chapter 3. And they put on themselves sackcloth and ashes. Now look at God's people. How are they dressed now? Look at verse 15. How are God's people dressed now? They are arrayed in royal robes of blue and white with a golden crown. Like they, they would have covered their head in ashes with the decree of death. Now the decree of life comes out. Mordecai, who is a picture of God's people, has a golden crown on his head. What a contrast between the two decrees. God's people, when the decree of death comes out, are in mourning. And now, how are they found? With joy. When this decree of death goes out in chapter 3, what are they found to be doing? Fasting, withholding food from themselves. And now, what are they doing? They're feasting. They're having a party. What a reversal in their circumstances. And in fact, it's not even back to where it was before. God has elevated his people. Their circumstances are better than they were before. Now they've, they've got God's people in places of influence within the kingdom. In a few months' time, their enemies will be destroyed. Now instead of there being confusion, there's shouting and joy. God, God has saved his people, but he has improved their situation as well. Folks, what we see here is that God comes to their defense. He doesn't leave them on their own. He saves them and defends him. He literally moves his people from death to life. What a turn around in events. And we know that the book of Esther is just a, just a, a microcosm of the story of God's people. That is what God does, folks. He moves his people from death to life. He moves his people from mourning to joy. He moves his people from, from a place of sackcloth and ashes to, to literally clothing us in royal robes. That's what God does. And he is the only one who can. He's the only one who can change our circumstances like that. And we need to know, we need to remember that the curse of death has hung over all of humanity since Adam. Every single one of us, because of Adam and Eve's sin, has been, has been born into just a, a condition of sin. And the curse for our sin is death. We've all inherited that. 
from Adam and Eve to their children to their children to their children, every single one of us has inherited that curse of death because of our sin. And not only that, in Genesis chapter 3, as you see just God responding to Adam and Eve's sin, it, we see the, the curse of death, but we, always, we also see that we will have enemies as we live this life, that we will be opposed opposed by our own flesh like we will just do things that we don't want to do we will engage in ways which are offensive to god satan will be working against us he will seek to destroy us even the world that we live in around us will try and drag us down further and further into sin but no sooner is the curse given in the garden of eden is a promise given that jesus will come and reverse the curse Jesus will come, God will come incarnate to our defense and not just come to restore Eden, not just come to kind of make things right again, but, but to make things better. That great reversal we know comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross, Jesus dies for sin. The cross, Jesus defeats his enemies. Imagine being there and and. And, and just, just the picture of, of God being hung on a cross. His enemies think that they have won. And he dies. Darkness falls upon the land. And they must have been rubbing their hands thinking, we've got him. We've got him. So Jesus dies on the cross. He removes the penalty of eternal death for his people. And he gives them his righteousness. He gives them his righteousness so that, so that they can be defended. He doesn't just kind of take away the penalty of our sin. He, he makes a way for us to be defended so that no one can bring an accusation against us. He deals with our sin and then he deals with those who will come and say, no, but you are still that. You are still one who sins. You are still that old person by clothing us in his righteousness by giving us his royal robes, they can't accuse us anymore because when they look at us, they see him. God dies on the cross, but he doesn't stay on the cross. They put him in a grave and three days later, he rises again and Jesus' resurrection was a public decree to his enemies that he has done it, that he has done what he said he will come to do, that he has defeated his enemies and he is defending his people. He defends his people on that day by clothing them in his righteousness and he continues to defend them to this day by giving them his Holy Spirit so that we can daily defend ourselves against Satan's sin and the world. He gives us his, his word so that we can defend ourselves with truth. He gives us prayer so we can come to God and, and plead with him in our weakness. He gives us one another, the community of God's people, so that we can help defend one another. God is a God who defends his people and defeats his enemies. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For since death came through a man, that's Adam. Through Adam, all of us have inherited a curse of death. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Paul is saying to the church in Corinth there, Every single one of us who comes into this world is plagued with death, physical death, but spiritual death as well. That is what we get from our father, Adam. But in Christ, those who are in Christ will be made alive. 
we're a reversal of our circumstances. And the death that we are heading towards is something that we deserve, yet God intervenes at the cross and gives us, gives us a decree of life. At the cross, God's enemies think that they have won. God defeats them and gives us a means of coming to our defense. Folks, we need to remember that. We need to remember, just as the Jews do here, that we have been defended, that we are being defended, and that God has defeated his enemies. They remember that. Like, like you see just how they respond at the end of the chapter. Like, like they don't kind of hear this, this new decree of life come out and then just crack on with their business. Like everything changes for them. And it should be the same for us too. So what does it look like for us to live as a defended people? Well, the first thing is we need to remember that our enemies are defeated. Like I said, we need to know that. If you're a Christian here this morning, Satan, sin, the the world, your flesh, all of these things which since you've been born have been trying to drag you further and further into darkness, they have been defeated. Jesus defeated them at the cross. Now the reality is, do we still struggle with sin? Yes, we do. Is the world still opposed to us in many ways? Yes, it is. Folks, are, are Christians still under the curse of physical death? Yes. Like, unless Jesus comes back, or well, no, you're not going to make a miracle, miracle cure. We will all die. Like, we will all physically die. Like, the curse of death is still very real for us. But we are also under a decree of life. And that changes everything for us. We will all experience physical death, but we will not be defeated by that death. In fact, it's the opposite. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Elizabeth's grand passed away um, and we had a funeral a couple of weeks back. Christian funerals are one of the most joyful experiences you can experience. And I know it sounds backwards to say that, but they are. We mourn the loss of Elizabeth's grand, but it was such a celebration. So the pastor described Isabel's passing as this, a doorway. Like it, it wasn't just, just the end of things for Isabel. It wasn't that we laid her in a coffin and put her in, in the grave and that was it. It was a doorway to a better life. It was, it was taken off kind of a, a, a garment which was, had holes in it and, and had been used and, 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 it, and, and just looked ragged. It was taken off that and put on clothes which are perfect. It was a doorway into something much greater. Death cannot defeat us. The only thing that death can do is take these mortal bodies. Or is it that Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain, it's better. We need to remember that our enemies are defeated and we need to live like we know that. So that means when it feels like we're losing, when it feels like sin is gaining ground on it, when it feels like like the world is pressing in on us, when it feels like Satan is just having a go day after day after day, we need to know, we need to remind ourselves and remind him he is defeated. The worst that he can do is take our bodies. And then we get to be with our Savior, Jesus, for all eternity. We need to remember that our enemies are defeated and we need to live with light, gladness and joy. Did you read that of how the Jews responded to this edict of life which came out? They responded with light, gladness and joy. 
I wonder if any of you have seen the, the documentary on, on Netflix about the Central Park Five. It's a documentary, a true story about five young men um, in 1989 who were accused of um, attacking a, a girl as she was running through Central Park. And these were young boys, so um, I think two 14-year-olds, a 15-year-old, and, and two 16-year-olds. Kids. And they were accused of, of um, attacking this girl and there wasn't much evidence. In fact, there wasn't a shred of evidence that, that it was them, but they uh, got prosecuted for it and were scapegoated for it and ended up going to prison for it. They served sentences, um, some of them ranging up to 13 years in prison for a crime that they didn't even commit. And this documentary kind of follows the story and it shows that their, their mothers kind of coming together just to just to petition the court and to and to build a case to try and get them released and eventually they got released in 2002 and it was a wonderful wonderful scene of them coming out and and being able to 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 kind of just live some of their lives which they which they missed while they were incarcerated they experienced freedom they experienced adulthood which they have never experienced before but here was the he was the, the, the gut-wrenching part of that documentary. Although they experienced freedom from their incarceration, every single one of them was left scarred by their experience. They were all bitter against the government. Now, they'd received huge payouts, millions of dollars, for the injustice that they had experienced. But they couldn't put a price on their freedom. They couldn't put a price on what they had lost. Nothing that was given to them could repair the damage that they had experienced. See, it's possible, folks, to be free from something but to still be burdened by it. These men have been given their freedom, able to walk free, having their, their criminal records wiped, but they were still living day after day with the crushing burden of what happened to them. It's still possible to be free and be burdened by it, but that is not the case with the gospel. That is not the case with the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We don't have to be burdened by our past. And here's the crazy thing. We were guilty. Those poor boys had done nothing wrong and yet they still had to walk with this burden of shame and the scars of what they had experienced. But, but every single one of us was guilty and Jesus still came to our defense. We are free. If you're a Christian here this morning, we are free. And that, that is not because that we, we have had our judgment cancelled. It is not because we have proved our innocence. It's not because we have come to God and agreed peace terms. It's not because we have paid our way into being free. It is because Jesus took that judgment for us. That is why we are free. And we have been declared not guilty. It's not even that, the, that God looks on us and, and kind of passes over our sins. It's that he says we are not guilty. That's like if you, if you try and look back and try and see evidence of our guilt. It's not there. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 14. This is what happens at the cross. This is what God does for us. This is how he defeats his enemies and defends his people. He cancels the record of death that stood against us and its legal demands, which was death. That's what the cross does. It cancels our record of death. Everything that we owed God because of our sin. Everything that's been stacked up against us saying, you deserve death. You deserve that decree of death being, being held over you. You deserve what is coming to you. Cancelled. And the legal demands of our sin against God 
taken away, set aside. Where are they to be found? Nailed to the cross. And at the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, I love this, and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. He put his enemies to open shame and triumphed over them at the cross. So when your enemies come to you and say, no, you are this. No, I am going to kind of drag you into death. No, you are going to get worse and worse and worse at this sin. Remind them of where their power is. It's been nailed to the cross as Jesus conquered them. As he rose victorious in his resurrection, he announced that the power, yeah, they may have some influence, but they have no power to to destroy us. They have no power to, to pull us away from God. Our enemies have been defeated and our record is clean. That means if anyone comes to accuse you, Jesus makes our defense. Jesus says, Romans 8 verse 1, that there is no condemnation for my son. There is no condemnation for my daughter. Folks, we need to live like that is true. We need to live like the gospel is true because it is. We need to respond with our lives to the truth of the finished work of the gospel. We need to be people who have light. Light. It's not talking about physical light there. It's talking about, just, just imagine, um, can you're, you're carrying a heavy weight. So I, I, I'll use Matty as an illustration. Matty has twice helped us move house. And each time he's been lumbered with the, most, the heaviest thing that we could find. And each time he's come away with a physical injury. God bless him because he's a, a slight lad. But he... he um, <laughs> He wanted to help. It's true, isn't it? And, and he's, he's, he's pulling these things in. And you, you, when you're carrying something heavy, you feel the weight, right? But when that weight is lifted off, you feel a lightness. You feel kind of being freed from that weight. Folks, that is what happens at the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, we are being crushed by our guilt. We are being rightly crushed by our shame because that is what sin does. And Jesus takes that burden off of us. And we should feel lightness because of that. Galatians 5 verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has has set you free. Stand firm then and what? Do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You know what so often we do when we just kind of, we, we, we get so, so um, infatuated with, 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 with sin. We go and we pick up that burden again and put it on our shoulders. And we don't have to. Jesus has taken it off. We should be able to live with lightness. Don't go back and, and, and engage in that sin and indulge in that sin again and, and put that burden. There's no need to do that. Jesus' death and resurrection has given his people lightness it's given them gladness that's what it says in, in chapter 8 the, the Jews were, were glad they had gladness as they responded to this decree of life as they responded to the salvation that they had received there was gladness are we a glad people are we like, like just hands down the best analogy that we can use is football isn't it like what does it feel like to be on a winning side some of us in this room know what that feels like some of us don't but it feels glad right and what happens when you're on the winning side when you're standing there in the cop and and your team is winning what do you do stand there quiet just watch what maybe a bit of an applaud watch what's going on no of course you don't you're you're kind of filled with gladness and it comes out of your mouth 
Folks, we have received the best news possible. We have been saved from death to life. We have been removed from mourning to joy. We have been taken out of a kingdom of darkness and have been given an inheritance of eternal life. And yet still some of us find that we just have to stand there and just clap along at this good news. This is revolutionary news, folks. We are on the victorious side. He has crushed our enemies. We should be filled with gladness. And yes, sin will come in and deceive us and the world will kind of just distract us. And okay, I'm not saying every day needs to be that kind of bouncy day where we're just, the joy of the Lord is upon us. But, but maybe sometimes we could be glad of what God has done. What about joy? God's people in chapter 8 are filled with joy at the news of their salvation. Christians, we have a hope that is unique. Yes, death will take us physically, but our future is secure. We have a, a sure and certain hope of where we will be when this body is taken away from us. We will be with God for all eternity in a place where there is no sin, where there is no pain, where there is no tears, where God's enemies can't press against us anymore. We will just be with him in perfect peace for all eternity. That should affect every circumstance which we go through now. There is no circumstance in this life, even death, which can crush us. That means we can engage in these things of life, the darkness of life, the pressures of life, with joy. Because we have a sure and certain hope. We need to remember our enemies are defeated. We need to live with light, gladness, joy and honour. And folks, finally, we need to bring others behind the defences. We need to bring others behind the defences. Chapter 8 here, you see that their salvation, the Jews' salvation, has such an impact on those around them that they're drawn towards the Jews. Verse 16, you, you see there's, there's light, gladness, joy, and there's honour. There's honour. Like they are well thought of by people outside of themselves. Like people who, who aren't Jews are looking at God's people and showing them honor. Again, what a contrast that is. Like literally the, the decree goes out, take up arms and kill them. And now they're being shown honor. There's a great irony that the enemies of God seek to destroy God's people to reduce their number. But instead what you see at the end of chapter 8, it looks like the number of God's people are growing. Verse 16, let me just read um, um, that again. Verse 17, sorry. In every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And then this. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. I've read this verse a number of times this week, trying to get... Uh, kind, of, kind of my head around what it's saying because you read that first off and this is what kind of came to me first many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them so here's where my, my mind went first that, that this decree goes out from Esther and Mordecai that the Jews can kind of take up arms on this day and defend themselves and so as a result people who aren't Jews in the land become fearful and they don't want to die so they start, they start associating themselves with the Jews like that's how I read it first off and that's how you might read it because they're fearful of the Jews because they're fearful of being killed themselves but actually you look under the surface and that isn't what is happening 
The fear that is kind of talked about there is a response to divine intervention. They are seeing God's people being defended. And, and you, kind of, you kind of think, just looking on what's going on here. It is wholly miraculous. Like it is impossible what has happened to God's people here. So that you go from nothing and nobodies and, and being people who are waiting for their genocide to being elevated to second in command in the country and now being allowed to take up arms themselves. Like this is a divine intervention. The fear that is being talked about here is people looking on and seeing a God, a force at work behind God's people. But look at this as well. The Jews are only allowed to defend themselves. They're not allowed to just go out and kill whoever they want. So if you're not going out to kill the Jews, you've got nothing to be scared of. You've got nothing to be fearful of. If this decree goes out that the Jews are allowed to take up arms and defend themselves, you have nothing to be worried about. So what is happening here, my conviction here and conviction of others as well, is that in light of their salvation, the people around them are now drawn towards God's people. You see a kind of similar thing happen with Rahab, Jericho. People there feel with a fear of God and, and Rahab is one of probably a few who are drawn towards God. Not because they're scared that they're going to die, but because there is a, a fear as they see God's, God's just, just impossible hand at work in God's people. They are drawn towards it. People from outside of God's people are drawn in as they see God's hand of salvation at work. My conviction is here is that this isn't that people are just kind of fearful of death, but actually they are being drawn in. And this is the fruit of the promise that is given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that God's people will be a blessing to the people around. If you're a Christian here this morning, you need to see that people who aren't Christians are not our enemies. They're not. We have been defended by the finished work of the cross, by Jesus' resurrection. We have been defended against our enemies. But that doesn't mean we just need to hunker down and kind of close ourselves away and kind of shut the lid and, and just stay safe until Jesus comes back or we go to be with him. And we step into the fight. Watched the film this week, Dunkirk. It was rubbish, actually. A lot of hype, and actually it wasn't that great. Um, no? Good. It was a great film. Great film. But there's a bit at the end where you'll know the story, Dunkirk. Um, uh, hundreds of thousands of Allied forces stranded on a beach in France. No way of getting out. And so the government in, in Britain, the Navy, commissioned around 850 private vessels, just little yachts and dinghies and boats, to, to cross the channel and bring our troops back. It is an amazing kind of true story of, of over 350,000 soldiers are brought back to Britain protected and defended and in the last scene of the film the kind of admiral of the navy is standing at the end of the pier in France and the last boat goes out and one of the soldiers says to him are you coming and he says no I'm waiting here I'm waiting for the French I'm going to get them across as well he could have easily just jumped on the boat and sailed off but he doesn't he steps into the battle folks that's what we need to do get out of our trenches and get into the battle to seek and save the lost. And, and the implication of chapter eight here is, is one way that we warn people to the kingdom of God is to live our lives in response to the salvation that we have received. Not to kind of just live lives that are ordinary because they are not. The gospel has transformed us. 
We should live lives which show and, and physically show the lightness that we have received as our burden of sin has been taken off us. We should live lives of gladness in response to the gospel, not just being a happy people, but being people who are glad because of the work that God has done in our lives. We should be a people who are genuinely, genuinely joyful. And to put ourselves amongst the world, not to kind of draw back and just, and just hunker down in the trench, but to get up and go into battle. Folks, what a gift the gospel is to us. No longer being seen as guilty people deserving a decree of death. But people who have received a decree of life. Who have been freed from eternal death. What are we going to do with that? Do we keep that good news to ourselves? Do we keep that behind our, our faces? Or do we respond rightly to a God who has done immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine? We need to remember our enemies are defeated. We need to live with light, gladness, joy. We need to bring others behind the defences. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We believe that it is true. We acknowledge that it is true. We thank you that you've shown yourself generation after generation to be a God who saves his people. We thank you for the salvation we see here thousands of years ago with your people under a decree of death in Persia. Thank you that you are sovereign, that you are a providential God who, who worked everything together to, to save your people from that decree. And not only that, but to elevate them, to protect them, to defend them. And Father, we see the same as true of us as we look back at the cross. And we see at, at that point a great reversal of, of the circumstances of all of humanity. We recognize that every single one of us rightly is, is held in judgment for our sin and the right judgment for that is death. We thank you that you have made a way possible. Jesus, we thank you for your perfect life and your death, which has made a way possible for us to sit under a decree of life and life eternal. We thank you for, for the defenses that you've given us. Thank you that you've clothed us with your righteousness so, so, so there is no more condemnation for us. But we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for one another, the community of God's people, each of which helps us to walk in righteousness and to defend ourselves against sin, Satan, and the world. Jesus, help us to be people who remember the truth that our enemies have been defeated. And help us to be people who respond rightly to the salvation that you have granted us. Help us to be genuinely glad. Help us to be genuinely uh, joyful. Help us not to be running back to sin and, and, just, uh, and intentionally trying to feel the weight of that again. But to know that we have been liberated from it. That our burden has been removed. To know that we are a free people. A liberated people. And Heavenly Father would you help us not to indulge in our freedom. Not to use it as an excuse for, for sin or apathy, but to, but to step forward and to drag other people into your kingdom. To bring them into your kingdom so that they too can experience the goodness of the gospel. So that they too can be defended. Provoke us, move us, equip us. Help us to be people who live lives that would, would draw people towards your son Jesus. 
Holy Spirit, help us in our weakness. For Jesus' sake. Amen. As we take this meal, we take it remembering that our freedom has been bought. And it was bought with the price. The freedom that we enjoy was bought by Jesus' broken body and his shepherd. The most costly thing in all eternity, God himself. Broken for you and for me. So that we could be a liberated people, so that we could be a people who are freed from the penalty of ours. We also take this meal in remembrance that we still sin, we still struggle, we still fall. This wine reminds us that there is forgiveness for our sins. There is no sin that is greater and more powerful than the shepherd of Jesus Christ. So take this meal in remembrance of that. Take this as a time to confess and repent of our sin. To, to remember the ways in which we struggle, but take this with thankfulness, with gladness, with joy. Remembering that our burden has been removed because of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Remember that, that he has announced and pronounced victory over his enemies as he rose from the grave. Remembering that he's seated at the right hand of the Father now, making our defense. There's no condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus. So take this meal and take this meal and ask the Holy Spirit to help you. To help you in your weakness against sin. And to provoke you towards living lives which would draw others towards the truth of the gospel. So let me pray. Give thanks for it. And then when you're ready, um, please come and take it. Jesus, we thank you for your body which was broken. And your blood which was shed. For the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus, we recognize that it should have been us who took that judgment. It should have been us who took the wrath from the Father rightly because of our sin. But we thank you that you stepped in and that you've taken that for us. And we recognize the cost. Jesus, we thank you so much for, for all that you have given for us, that you would call us your own. Help us not to take the freedom that we have received for granted. Help us not to abuse the grace which we have been given. But as we take this meal now, would you by your spirit remind us of the ways that we are still offending God, the ways that we are still walking in sin and darkness. Holy Spirit, would you shine light on those areas? Would you draw us to true confession and repentance? Jesus, would you help us to take this meal in celebration? The gospel is true. That we are who you say we are. We are a people who have been saved, redeemed from the curse. That you've spoken a decree of life over us, which is permanent and undone. Holy Spirit, would you fill us as we take this meal? Would you equip us for ministry? Would you equip us for good works? Would you help us to walk in righteousness? So Jesus, we thank you for all that you have done. Remember your body which was broken, your blood which was shed, and we give you thanks in your name of your blood.